Good morning. I have to admit, I have never been an advocate of applause in church. And maybe someday we'll talk about that. But if I were, I would have applauded for the reading of that scripture. <laughs> now, what you don't know is in my introduction, you really, if I got this right, you should applaud me too. But I, I'm sure I'll get it wrong. Having uh, given you an introduction to the book of Judges last week, I, uh, I found my favorite commentary on the book of Judges. It's by Dale Ralph Davis. He has written a commentary on the book of Joshua. He has written a commentary on the books of First and Second Samuel. And uh, when I preached through First and Second Samuel, that was my favorite commentary. But you'll get a flavor of this guy uh, in just a moment, because the introduction of his commentary is a non-introduction. That is, he refuses to have one. And so he explains it this way. He says, we could wade through it all. The question of the Deuteronomic history, the matters of Uberliefungsgeschichte, that's the one. <laughs> the definition of a, of a shofet, that means uh, a judge. Moral problems in the stories, chronology, archaeology, date, authorship. All those exciting things that readers are just dying to know. Yes! I love this man. Never met him, but I love it. And then he goes on to say this. I can only confess that as for an introduction to judges... An excellent piece of work has already been done by the author of the book. And I'm not capable of writing a better one. Indeed, I have a growing conviction that we would find far more fun and profit in Bible study if we gave more heed to the introductions the biblical writers themselves preface to their works than with the welter of opinions. Now he tries to save his bacon here, but it's too late than the welter of opinions, helpful as they may be sometimes, about a biblical book drearily culled from the last 200 years of biblical scholarship. Don't you love that? I hate introductions, and especially scholarly ones. They just bore the socks off of you. And what he's saying is, look, the author's got an introduction. I'm going to tell you a secret. The author has... Two introductions to this book, and we're going to take the first of his two introductions today. Well, let me tell you what to expect as we approach this message. I think there is some background information that is necessary to help us understand and to come to terms with the text in terms of its interpretation and its application. So I'll supply a little bit of data for you. Then I want to look at some of the events. Obviously, we cannot look at each of these events in detail, but I want to look at some of the critical events that have been described in the text that has been read uh, in a little bit more detail. And then I want to try to connect the dots. In other words, why did the author put these stories together? I mean, don't you love this one? You know, this guy goes on to say somewhere, you know, who cares about some king's thumbs and toes and about this oxon or springs and, you know, all these things that are going on. What is all of this stuff here for? Uh, connecting the dots. And then to talk about the application of these things for us. So let's talk about some background information if we can. I think that, that you, at least I need to tell you what my hermeneutical principle is here, and that is when we come to the details of this text, when we come to the interpretation of this text, we should expect to understand it in the light of what has already been said. I take it that the first five books of the law are at least available to these, uh, to these uh, Israelites, I'm not sure about the book of Joshua, but the events would have been fresh enough in their history that that shouldn't be any surprise uh, to them as well. But in addition, we need to look forward because Judges is the book that prepares us for First and Second Samuel. And so when we have an interpretive question, we ought to look ahead, before, behind, and we ought to look forward, and we ought to be able to understand that. You're going to see that when I come to this issue of Adonai Bezek and the loss of his thumbs and toes. 
I think it's trying to tell us more than he had to give up hitchhiking. And, and we need to understand what this is all about. And, and it's there, I believe, in the text. We must take into account the distinction between the words take and possess. Now, I, I don't want to get technical. I'm not even sure I'm, I'm capable of going as far as I should. But the author uses in Joshua and in Judges different words. There is a difference between taking the land, that is, between having a military success and possessing the land. Maybe, maybe you would understand it better by this analogy. You might win the battle, but have you won the war? That's the question. And, and so when we see that played out, uh, when we see the, the, the conquest that takes place in the book of Joshua, uh, that certainly was the taking of the land. But what we see in the book of Judges is the possession of the book, a uh, possession of the land, and that is there had been a strategic military operation that had won key battles, but it still was in the hands of the tribes individually to go in and now take possession of the land that had been allocated to them so in the book of Joshua, you see the first 12 chapters or so is taking the land. Then the, the land is distributed amongst the tribes. And now in Judges, it's the tribe's responsibility to possess it. And in order to possess it, they must not only defeat and destroy the Canaanites, they must be driven out uh, so that they may fully possess it without uh, difficulty. So what you'll see, for example, when you look at, at Jerusalem, just as an example, or remember the ancient name was Jebus, you'll discover that in the book of Joshua, Judah is said not to be able to have taken uh, Jebus or Jerusalem. And that's because of, this, of the way in which it was uh, placed in, on top of literally a, a hill, a mountain, and, and access to it was limited. So Joshua says Judah didn't possess it. In our text, in uh, verse 8, it says that the sons of Judah fought and defeated and uh, destroyed it with the edge of the sword and set it on fire. And yet later in the chapter, we see that the sons of Benjamin really were not able to possess it. So there was a war won. And, and all of this is to say that what you need to understand is that the Israelites, comparatively speaking, you can talk about two million people coming out of the Exodus, but the reality is when you go in to possess a land and you have that few people, you don't have enough people to literally occupy that land. And so you can win a victory and then you go on to fight another war. And what happens? The Canaanites just come surging back in. And, and so that's why we see these different statements. You know, it's not until 2 Samuel chapter 5 that David takes Jerusalem and then makes it his capital. And from that point on, of course, it is possessed by Israel. The other thing we need to understand is that the events that are promised by God, that is the taking of the land, was not to take place quickly. Now, there were a couple of reasons for that. Our text uh, in Judges we will read that God wanted this new generation to learn war. He didn't want a, a, a bunch of sissy Israelites. He understood that they needed to learn to fight. And so he left wars for them to fight and wars for them to win. But he also says that if they were to possess the land too quickly and they didn't have the population, then they would have a problem with wild animals. In other words, you, if, if all the Canaanites left and there were as few Israelites as there were, then basically the place is going to turn into a jungle because there just aren't enough people to populate it uh, as they possess it. So it was meant to take time. And so some of the time factor is not a matter of their sin as much as it is the plan of God. It would have taken time anyway. The question is whether Israel was obedient to the Lord. It should be obvious, but these events take place shortly after the death of Joshua. So what we see, as I understand it, is when you come to Joshua 23, Joshua 24, and you see Joshua speaking to the Israelites, reminding them of all that God had done, and then saying they need to choose who they will serve, 
He's speaking to this generation, as I understand it, because the older generation is dying off. And now it is that generation who said, we will serve the Lord. Joshua says, you don't understand. You are not able to live to the standard that God has set. He's a holy God. Oh, yes, we will. We're going to do this. We can do it. And so here we come upon them as they seek to do that. Let me add a couple things that weren't in your note. One of them is about the cities. I love this. Davis made the point. He's saying, you know, as we look at all these cities, our mind almost swims, does it not? You look at all those, and I, I, I even made the effort to try and find out, where, you know, where are all these cities and whatever. And, and the truth of it is, you and I are probably never going to get the whole point, but, but here's a couple points that, that I think are important. One the repetition is deliberate. Why is it that you see city after city after city after city that isn't taken? It's because it's trying to make a point. Israel did not possess the land. The repetition is important. Here's the other part. We, did, we don't live in Israel. We didn't live in Israel at the time the original readers did. If we did, we would understand the strategic place these cities have. Now, just just look in your in your if you've got a, a map set in, in your Bible or or some uh, uh, satellite map, and what you will discover is this: there's a whole lot of mountains in Israel. Would you not agree? The Promised Land has a whole lot of mountains, some valleys, some plains. Main plains are actually you know along Gaza and along the seacoast. And what you recognize is that, the, that all through history, the kings coming uh, had to pass through Israel. And so, in a sense, it's the international freeway. But when you have mountains and whatever, there's only certain places you can go. And if you win the key cities, you have control of commerce and you have control of population movement, and you have control of communication and interaction between the tribes. So the point of all these cities is when the Israelites fail to possess them, they fail to win these strategic locations, and therefore they were handicapped. So part of the problem with the, with the unity of the tribes is that the tribes couldn't really easily get back and forth to each other with these Canaanite uh, barriers, so to speak, between their cities and uh, blocking their roadways. The, uh, so anyway, let's leave that as the background information that we need to have. Now let's, let's talk about some selected events in our text. It seems to me that the key uh, for this chapter is really uh, found at verse 1 and verse 2. Who will go up first... For us. Now, notice that God does not initiate this conversation. The Israelites do. Those Israelites who said, we're going to serve God, we're going to go and possess the land. Rightly, they ask God, who's going to lead? Uh, whenever people went to war, somebody's got to be out there in front. And the question is, who's going to lead this? It shouldn't be a surprise to us that the tribe of Judah would be designated. Is it? Because that's the tribe from which Messiah is going to come. No big, no great surprise uh, there. But it seems to me that what it says to us is the critical issue is leadership. The critical issue is leadership. I want to come back to that. But it, it seems to me that one of the great failures in this whole section is a failure in leadership. And, uh, and I would say also, the successes that we're going to see are also successes related to leadership. Remember the statement, Israel had no king in those days. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Leadership, good leadership, was critical. And when it failed, it, it was a disaster. Here's where you come across uh, some, uh, if you want to waste your time and, and, and get into speculation, get into the commentaries about Judah asking Simeon to go with him. And 
I went down the mental trail before I even looked at the commentaries. I went down that mental trail myself and said, you know, is this a Deborah and Barak incident where, where, where Barak is saying to Deborah with his knees knocking, I'm not going to war unless you come with me? Is that what this is? Chicken Little who, who, who won't go to battle unless he's got somebody with him? Simeon wasn't that powerful. Now, they shared borders, boundaries, and so they were close. Remember, they were blood brothers, and so that was certainly something in their favor. I was inclined initially to say that this was sort of a cowardly move on Judah's part. I'm not quite willing to go there anymore. And one of the things that Davis points out is that when Israel acts in harmony and unity, they have success. When they fractionalize, then you've got another problem. When you look at the very beginning of the book of Judges, here is, uh, and certainly back in Joshua, you've got Israel acting as a whole. When you end up at the end of the book of Judges, you actually have Israelites versus Israelites doing war with one another. So that's not a good thing. Unity is a good thing. And, and so I don't have any great protests about Judah and Simeon, but I will note when you get to verse 19, Simeon disappears. And the question is, does Judah lose their courage when they lose their ally in Simeon? Don't know. But we'll talk about it in, in a little bit. The defeat of Adonai Bezek. Thumbs up to this particular chapter and, and these verses. But, you know, the interesting thing to me was the way the commentaries handle it. Now, I haven't read all the commentaries. Somebody out there may agree with me, but I'm amazed. I am amazed at what I read. Nobody really looks disparagingly at this particular event, and, and I just can't understand why. Now, you remember the story. Adonai Bezek is, is the Adonai means Lord or whatever of this particular area. doesn't mean he's a huge big-time guy. But he's opposing Israel. They pursue him. They capture him. They cut off his thumbs and his big toes, which makes for not a particularly strong military leader and, and, and whatever. When you're, when you're uh, sort of uh, fixed like that, it would be like slicing the, the tendons on the, on the horse's uh, legs so they can't do battle. I understand all that. And I understand that he says... I got what I deserved. I understand that. Although the word that he uses for God, I think, is a more generic word. And I'm not sure that there's any indication. In fact, I'm sure there isn't. There's no indication of faith on this guy's part. So everybody goes and says, see, this is divine retribution. God has given men what the, this is justice. This is divine justice. I contend with you, it is Canaanite justice. There is a difference between Canaanite justice and divine justice. Is that not true? In other words, we're not, the Israelites, we're not obliged to deal with people. And what this man has told us is, this is the way I, as a Canaanite, this is the way I have dealt with my enemies. I cut off their toes and I cut off their thumbs and now it's happened to me. What that tells me is, Israel has now chosen to deal with their enemies the way Canaanites deal with their enemies. Now I come to my hermeneutic. I said to you I was going to get there. I'm going to go back and let's look at the Old Testament and let's see what has already been written about what Israel is supposed to do with the Canaanites and in particular with their, with their kings. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse... 24. Now, you'll notice in, in the text, it says in verses 22 and 23 that the Lord will clear away these nations and so on. It won't happen quickly because the wild beasts will become too numerous. But God will deliver them for you. And then look at verse 24 of Deuteronomy 7. And he will deliver their kings into your hand so that you shall make their name perish from under heaven. All right. So what is that telling us? If you're supposed to utterly annihilate the Canaanites and God delivers them into your hands so their name perishes, you think they're supposed to live in Jerusalem with their toes and their thumbs off? I don't think so. 
They were supposed to die. Now, go to Joshua chapter 10, verses 16 through 27. Remember the five Amorite kings at Gibeah? The Gibeonites were the ones that said, we come from far away, whatever. And so they make a covenant, and now Israel's got to protect them. These five kings, remember, go and, and they end up hidden in a cave and, and, uh, and they are sealed up. Joshua says, seal up the cave so they can't get out. Go do your battle and then come back. What happens when the Israelites come back to that cave? They open it up. They have the Israelites put their feet on the necks of the kings. And then what happens? They kill them, right? Now, step ahead with me. We've got the command of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 24. We've got the example of Joshua. Now go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. The Amalekites. God said to Saul, I want to bring justice on the Amalekites for what they have done. Totally annihilate the Amalekites and all of their cattle. What happens? You remember the story? Samuel comes along and, 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 uh, and Saul meets him and he says, I have done what the Lord has commanded. My favorite line in that chapter is, what is this bleeding of the sheep I hear? Hadn't killed all the cattle. Hadn't killed the king, Agag. And Samuel says to Saul, you failed to obey. You rebelled against God by not doing what he said, and it cost Saul his kingdom. And at the end of chapter 15, Samuel cuts Agag into pieces. Now, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying in part, nobody does it all perfectly. I'm not criticizing Judah for going to war. I'm not even going to criticize him for taking Simeon with him. I do say when they defeated Adonai Bezek, he should have died. Now, keep this in mind, too. Adonai Bezek is taken to Jerusalem and he died there. It doesn't say he was executed there and he didn't need to be executed there. And if you read the next verse, by the way, I'm not sure about the word then. One of the translations puts parenthesis around this because, remember, Jerusalem isn't under control. What this tells me is if Jerusalem has to be defeated later and it's defeated to the point where the, where, where the, the king can be taken there, there's some time. In other words, Adonai Bezek has been allowed to live for some time and he dies, I think, a natural death. Why would you take Adonai Bezek to Jerusalem to live? Here's my, here's my take. Could be wrong. Why did Adonai Bezek cut off the thumbs and toes of the kings that he did and have them at his table eating his crumbs? Because they were his trophies. They were his trophies. It's just like a guy that goes to Africa and gets all these animals and hangs them up on the wall. Here are these guys groveling at his table, uh, taking up the crumbs, uh, so to speak, uh, whatever. And what that says is, whoever's, whoever's table that is, it says, I'm, I'm the greatest. I'm strong. I'm tough. Look at all my trophies. The victory was the Lord's. The victory was the Lord's. And the Lord said, don't let them live. Here's the irony. Sometimes sin will keep us from victory. Sometimes victory will lead us to sin. I just see this victory as ending badly because somebody made a trophy out of somebody who should have been a corpse. That's my take. And you can read the commentaries. Everybody else goes somewhere else down that trail. And I, I just have to stay with this. Caleb, Othniel, and Aksah. Isn't this interesting? Now, again, of all the things that a writer could put down, you're saying, what in the world is this? And she jumps off the animal and she goes and says to her dad, give me a blessing and give me springs and whatever. And you're thinking, hello? Why <laughs> are reading this? Well, let me make a suggestion. A. We see Caleb and, and basically this account of his taking of the land in, in, in three different places. 
So it must be important if the Bible's going to repeat it for us, then it must be important. Not to mention the fact that in Numbers 13 and 14, Caleb is the leader who is the one, the, res, the, the representative of the tribe of Judah who is sent with the 12 spies to spy out the land, and it is he and Joshua who come back and say, we can take them, we can take them, right? Caleb is the guy who then in his old age, when everybody else has died off, Caleb is the guy who goes, and he not only gets the hill country, he gets the giants. I wish I could say it like Dr. Johnson used to. The giants, he'd say. The giants. Oh, that was great. And, and he gets them, and he in his old age takes them and takes the land. This guy is something else, is he not? And by the way, you're going to come back in, in a minute in, in chapter 3 when we get there. And this fellow, Othniel, you've got to say, okay, what's with him? Othniel was one of the first judges of Israel. So what is this all about? What do we care about a guy giving his, his daughter off for a wife and, and, uh, and his daughter asking for springs of land? Here's the way I take it. You can go anywhere you want with this. I said the issue is about leadership. Generally speaking, people are not named. Judah goes out to battle. We don't know. We wouldn't know, apart from being told about Caleb. We wouldn't know that it was Caleb who was one of the key guys in this, would we? Simeon, these other guys, Benjamin. We don't know the names of any individual but Caleb and Othniel and Aksah. Why? Because he is the one leader who stands out in contrast to this whole generation. Does he not? He's the, he's the guy who at Kadesh Barnea is saying, we can take him, we can take him, let's go. Israel is going to experience another Kadesh Barnea in, in reality in our text. And that is, they think the opposition is too strong. And consequently, they don't take the land fully. Now, granted, they win some victories and whatever, but they don't fully take the land. So here's, what I, here's the way I read this text. A, Caleb is cited because he is the spark plug of Judah's leadership. And when you have men of courage who stand firm in their leadership, other people stand firm with them as well. I found an interesting text back in, in Deuteronomy where it talks about Israel going to war. And it basically says this. I think it's the early part of chapter 20. It says, if you have a piece of land that, that you have not yet uh, been able to enjoy the benefits of, he doesn't go to war. If you're engaged to a woman and you haven't enjoyed the benefits of marriage, he doesn't go to war. If you're fearful, you don't go to war. Why? Because God doesn't want wimps. And he doesn't want people whose minds and hearts aren't in the battle. That's what Gideon is going to have to do. He gets down to 300 people, but they're not 300 sissies. The sissies have gone home. Now you've got people with deep trust in God, and it's God who gives the victory, not the numbers of the troops. I believe Caleb is a real man. And when I look at this story and I read this, I have five daughters and I watch, sometimes I watch with pleasure and sometimes I watch with chagrin to see myself in my daughters. But I read this text and I said, you know what? This woman is like her father. Remember when, when the story is played out about Caleb and God had made the promise to Caleb, I'm going to give you this piece of land. He goes to Joshua and he says, Joshua, remember what God said to me? Give me that land. I'm going to take it. Give me that land. I'm going to go possess it. Now, here is Caleb. And one of the problems that you have in this whole account, we're going to see more of uh, as time goes on, is a generational problem. In other words, one generation removed from the successful victories under Joshua and we end up with what we see in the book of Judges, in, in Judges chapter 1, where they're not taken fully, they're not taking possession of what God promised to give. So, I would suggest to you that just like her father said to Joshua, give me this land, 
Now, Caleb is saying to himself, how can I inspire future leaders of this generation? And he says, here's my spunky little daughter, Aksa. Now, who's the guy who's enough of a man to be her husband? I know you may think I'm way out there in the limb and get the saw and saw it off, but I got to tell you, I think, I think that he knew what it took to cultivate the right kind of leadership, and I don't think it's an accident that Othniel is going to be one of the judges. This guy was a man of courage. Now, the interesting thing is that he had promised to give the wife, and, and, and here's this gal, this gutsy gal, who, has, who is of a mind. Is she, is she not in the right mindset of saying, God's given us this land, God's given us this possession, we're going to possess it. And so she says to her husband, I think you need to ask for some, uh, some more land. Uh, as well as, as, as me, we need to have land. If we're going to have God's blessings, we've got to have land. It never really tells us what happens on that count. But what it does say is she rides up, she alights, she, she jumps off, and, and one of the commentators says, that's a word that expresses eagerness and, and, and aggressiveness. Here's a gutsy gal, and she's going, what's her dad say? What do you want? He knew. He knew his daughter. She says, hey, I not only need land, if we're going to occupy this land to be successful, we've got to have water. All right, so here's what I'm saying. Here's a man who's a great leader, Caleb. Can you, we can't argue with that, can we? Here's his daughter, and by the way, as you read Hampton uh, Keefley's article on the book of Judges, women in the book of Judges, here's a real woman. Here's a real woman, a gutsy woman. And who better to be the wife of a judge than a gutsy woman? So here's the next generation, thanks to Caleb. Here's the next generation stepping up to the plate when a bunch of them are going to fade. That's my take. And you can uh, take that for, for what it's worth. Now, I will say just one thing about verse 16. The Kenites. Remember Moses, the descendants of Moses' father, father-in-law? And it talks about them going off and... and uh, they went along with Judah, and then they went and lived with the people. Amazingly, the Net Bible says the people of Israel. That, that I have to say, that is really uh, missing the point. It wasn't the people of Israel. As a matter of fact, if you read in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when Agag, uh, when they're going to de- defeat Agag and the Amalekites, they go amongst the Amalekites, and who do they find? The Kenites. And what do they say? We're going to clean these guys' clocks. You better get hit the road or you're going to get cleaned in as well. They were living with the people, not with the Israelites. And, and that's, trust me, I'm not picking on them. They're just like everybody else. All I'm saying is, here we go. We're starting down that slippery slope of living amongst the Canaanites rather than throwing them out. Canaanites included. Then it starts going downhill. Chapter, uh, or verse 17 Judah and Simeon go and they strike down Horma, and and uh, and the Lord was with uh, Judah. But verse 19. Now the Lord was with Judah. No Simeon mentioned, and uh, no Caleb mentioned in this instance. They took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley, because they had iron chariots. Ooh, iron chariots. Scary, right? Scary. All right, let's go back to uh, the text on that one. God said in Deuteronomy to the Israelites, when you come upon the enemy and you see their chariots and the large number of their forces, don't be afraid. God told them, don't sweat chariots, no problem. Israel's history, look back in the past. Exodus chapter 15. What does it say? Exodus 14, remember when the, when they go, the Israelites go through the Red Sea and, and, and God gets all the Israelites out? What happens to the chariots? They're stuck in the mud, right? High tech just got Egypt wiped out. And you know what the, the poetry of Exodus 15 says? They sank like lead. See, here's these, these 
tank chariots. Woo! They're so awesome, so fearful that you get stuck in the mud in the middle of the Red Sea. And now all of a sudden, they're the noose around your neck. Is God shaking in his boots because of iron chariots? I don't think so. Now go with me in your minds to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Israel has repented before God. Samuel calls upon Israel to go up to Mizpah, high ground. And there, Israel is gathered to restore their relationship with God. The Philistines hear about it and think it's a military uprising and that they're gathering for war. The Israelites don't have any weapons. And remember, the text has made it clear. The Philistines had iron technology. The the Israelites did not. And in fact, even to get your plows sharpened, you had to go to a Philistine to do it. In other words, Philistines were high-tech, and they had high-tech weapons, and that included iron chariots and spears and swords, right? Now, I've told you this story before, but it's one of my favorite stories, and I'd love to tell it again. Here they are. The Philistines have gathered all around, and they are just ready now to to pounce upon the Israelites who are weaponless. And here the Philistines are with their swords and their spears and their high-tech iron chariots. And what does God do? Sends an electrical storm. Thunder, lightning, great confusion. I love this. Somebody says, charge! And God says, I'll take that. And all of a sudden, what do you do with iron riding iron chariots in an electrical storm? You're grounded. That's just what it is. What I'm trying to say to you is, why is it that we look at things like technology and we say to ourselves, oh my goodness, I know that God promised to give us the land, but they have... Iron chariots. Sure they do. God loves to up the ante. Does he not? He loves to up the ante. Every Sunday I come and I sit through the Lord's Supper and I say, how is the Lord connecting what's going to be said in this hour to what I'm going to say in the next hour? John chapter 11. Lazarus is dead. Jesus hears about it and waits. Why? Because he wants Lazarus Good and dead. Why? Because he doesn't want to be the God of the possible. Martha is saying, if you'd only hurried and gotten here while he was fainting away, you could have saved him. But now it's too late. God loves the impossible. And so these iron chariots that become the excuse for not taking the land were the reason that God put them there so that he could show his great power. And yet, Israel said, it's too tough. We can't do it. Now, I want to hastily say, when you look at the rest of of chapter 1, it's just all downhill and it goes fast. Does it not? What you see in the beginning of chapter 1 is Israel defeating the Canaanites. What you see at the end of chapter 1 is the Canaanites defeating the Israelites, Dan. They chase the Israelites up into the hills. Who's prevailing? Not God's people, but God's enemies. You see in the beginning, or halfway down the the chapter, you see that they don't kill off all of the Canaanites, and so there are a handful of Canaanites living amongst the Israelites. What happens by the end? The Israelites are a handful full of people living amongst the Canaanites. This is not good, folks. It's not good. It's all going downhill. But... And I'm going to cheat on on my notes, so you'll have to just try to race and keep up with me in terms of the PowerPoint. But let me just uh, let me just say when we come to chapter two and verses one through five, I'm surprised. I'm surprised. I just admit it. I found myself as I read chapter one, I found myself sucked into that story. and, and, And I found myself just because of the repetition I'm so used to Israel failing that I expect it. And, and so I say to myself, well, I mean, it was tough. It was tough. The, these, these Canaanites were tough people. And they had iron chariots. So how could I find fault with Judah? Or how could I find fault with these other guys when they just weren't strong enough? The problem is, 
God promised they would win. Did he not? He basically said, when you go and you see the size of that army and you see all these things and you start shaking in your boots, hey, remember what I did in the past. I took on Egypt, most powerful nation on the face of the earth, took them swimming and it was over. I'll do the same with these Canaanites. I will give you the victory. Don't worry about their chariots. Don't worry about the size of their army. Don't worry about the impossibility. I love impossible. In fact, if it's not impossible, I wait until it is. So that my power and my glory are there. But I found myself just almost accepting the circumstances of chapter 1. And when I come to chapter 2, it's like, whoa, is God unhappy? And so, you see, the angel of the Lord, who I, I guess I would say is the pre-incarnate person of our Lord, he comes up to, from Gilgal to Bochum and he says, Look, I brought you out of Egypt. I led you into the land which I swore to your fathers that I would give to you. And I said to you, I'll never break my covenant with you. I'll never fail on my word when I said, I'll give you the land and I'll give you the victory. But you broke your covenant with me. The one they just made back in Joshua. Oh, we will serve the Lord, they said. He said, you've broken your covenant with me. Therefore, I will not drive them out before you. They shall become as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. That's exactly what God had warned. Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, what God had warned. Came about when the angel of the Lord spoke these words the sons, to the sons of Israel, that all the people lifted up their voices and wept. They named the place Bochum, and they sacrificed to the Lord. It's one of those things you just left hanging there, and you're saying, well, so? Most of the commentators say, you know, tears aren't enough. Tears aren't enough. They, they, they had tears. That's good. But Paul says true repentance is going to lead to a change. But we're going to go on in chapter 2 and find out nothing really changed. So connecting the dots. What are the repetitions? Well, Caleb certainly gets a lot of space. And the tribe of Judah gets a lot of space. And the expression that says, remember, they didn't defeat the Canaanites, but when they became strong, they made them slave labor. Right? Slave labor. That's a very interesting thought. If the Israelites had become strong and could make slaves of Canaanites, why couldn't they have killed them? They could have. They could have. But you see, slave labor was a valuable commodity. Why not use your enemy rather than lose them? By the way, I couldn't help it. When Ray was reading, he called the city, which I call Luz, Luz. And I thought, how appropriate. They're losers. That's what they are. I wouldn't want to be there in that town, but there they are. God did not want his people to gain from the Canaanites. And that's exactly what the Israelites did. When they got strong and they could have rid themselves... They used their enemy rather than to destroy them. The slave labor thing is very prominent, I think, and it tells us something. What are the trends of the progressions? Well, they're downward, aren't they? I mean, you see Israel moving from success and victory to defeat at the end. You say the Israelites have a few Canaanites living amongst them, and at the end, it's a few Israelites living amongst the Canaanites. The trends are not good, my friend. And it tells us that Israel had failed. Well, I'm going to leave the why and where did the Israelites fail and jump to the conclusion because uh, time is passing me by. What's the message and the application for today? I've changed my wording on this a little bit, but I want to say it this way. Failure starts quickly, but it's often perceived slowly. Failure starts quickly but it's often perceived slowly. Folks, this is the next generation after Joshua. The next generation. And they've gotten this far down already. And folks, it's going to get worse, not better. This is the, this is the best that it gets. So failure starts quickly, 
the next generation, it's perceived slowly. In fact, it's not perceived until God comes with his angel and speaks to them and tells them what it is. Failure may even appear to be success. Boy, this is scary stuff. Here they are with these Canaanite slaves. And the Israelites are in fat city and everything's going well. And they've you know, they got these people working their farms and whatever. And, and people say, whoa, look how God is prospering them. He's not prospering. He's not. They're actually on their way to captivity and they don't even know it. It's the Canaanites who are going to be captives of the Israelites because the Israelites have dwelt amongst them and become a part of them and now are embracing the system. It was interesting when, when God said, you shall not make a covenant with them. If you're going to have slaves, if, if you're going to have slaves, you're going to have to have some agreement. That is, there has to be some kind of agreement as to who they are and who you are and how that all works. It's a covenant, in effect. Israel has ended up in this relationship with the Canaanites. Uh, you know, boy, if you look around today, is it not possible that you could look around at certain ministries and you could look at the trappings, and I don't mean to say that all successful ministries are bad ones, but, but is it not possible that we may be looking at some ministries, maybe even amongst us, and we're saying, look how God is blessed. And God is saying, I never promised to bless you that way. Be careful. Failure may initially look like success. Failure may even appear to be justified. I mean, you read through this and you say, well, they got iron chariots. I mean, well, what else? What's the argument? What's the problem? That's the way it is. We can look. I, you talk about businesses uh, that go out and they're, they're going to start up. And what do they do? Feasibility studies, right? You know, how many cars or trucks are going by this road and how many people might stop and whatever. When you do feasibility studies on the work of God, they're all going to fail. They're all going to fail. You look at church. You look at the way God has orchestrated to, to run a church. And I, we've had people say over the years, it's impossible to run a church the way you do. You know what you want to say? Good. Good. If we were doing church the way everybody else did, and it can work humanly, then where's God's fingerprints in this? I love it. I love it when it's impossible. But sometimes we look around us and we say, you know, I would have done this, but I would have done this ministry, but I didn't have the money. I would have done this ministry, but I didn't have the time. I, I would have done this ministry, but I don't have the, the, the pizzazz and whatever that person X, Y, or Z has. Have you ever thought about the excuses we offer up for ourselves? We look sometimes at, at successful people. I, I faced that in, at Believer's Chapel years ago, and I looked at the Walkies and the Lewis Johnsons, and I, I basically said, who am I? <laughs> well, God didn't. I mean, he knew that already. <laughs> but the point is, I'm not called to be them. I'm called to do what God has called me to do. And God has promised that if I am doing what he has called me to do, it will be accomplished. Now, 2 Corinthians makes it clear that God uses weakness so that he may bring glory to himself. But the reality is, I don't have an excuse of it being impossible ever. It may be that God has not purposed for that to happen. That's another story. If God has purposed for it to happen and God has commanded me to do it and he has promised success, I have no excuse. No excuse at all. And it frightens me. It frightens me to think of the number of things I haven't done because I told God it wasn't possible. As I look at our economy and I look at things going on around us, you know what? God's just pulling the props out. Just pulling the props out. He's putting us by the Red Sea and he's putting the Egyptians behind us. And he's saying, sure, it's impossible. Sure it is. But I promised that I would fulfill my covenant. How can we discern sin? By his word. 
<laughs> the word of the Lord came to Israel. The word of God declared to Israel what God would do. The word of God declared to Israel what they must do. And the word of God declares when we're failing to do it that it's sin. One last word on leadership. I think it's true with Judah. It seems to me that it's possible, not that Judah was so wrong in having Simeon with him, is that Judah lost heart when Simeon wasn't. And apparently Caleb wasn't either. At least they're not mentioned. It's possible that sometimes we have our trust in men rather than in God. And that's not a good thing. But my point is this. Isn't it interesting how God has chosen to use Caleb as the example of godly leadership? And I want to suggest to you that courageous leaders inspire others to do great things. I think this is a time when I'm praying for my fellow elders and myself that we will be courageous leaders. And not just us, not just us, but that men and women, some of you will be axas who are saying, give me some land, give me some springs. Let's see God work. I'm praying that we will stand up and say the days are dark, the days are difficult, but God's word has not changed. He's given us a task to do, and by God's grace and God's power, we're going to do it. Father, thank you for this text. Help us to see these events in the light of our lives. Give us courage. Give us trust. Help us to be careful not to use the things of the flesh as somehow support for what we would think is your work. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.